tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto from Dog Works Radio. On this episode of our Mushing Radio segment, we're talking to Iditarod finisher Tom Jamgochian. I hope I pronounced that correctly here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. Here we go. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.5 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site. You can find us on social media. Just search for Dog Works Radio. And we're also on iTunes. Search for the same name, Dog Works Radio. Calling in from Southern California is our co-host, Alex Stein. Alex, how's it going? It is going fantastic, Robert. How are you doing? I am doing well today. Today we have a recent Iditarod finisher. He is calling in from north of Nome, Alaska. It is Tom Jamokshin. I know I'm messing that up. I apologize. We'll have him do it again so I don't mess it up again. Tom, how's it going? It's going great. And the last name is Jam Goshen. Jam Goshen. Okay. So, Tom, uh, how is the weather up in Nome? You know, I was up there right for the finish, and it was pretty balmy when I was there. How's the weather now? Oh, it's pretty nice. It was negative 5 this morning. It's probably 6 above, so we've got pretty stable conditions for mushing still. Very nice. So before we get into your story and talk about Iditarod and things, can you tell our listeners, you know, a lot of people have this romantic idea of what Nome is like and what it is to live there and you know they've never been there other other than seeing it you know on the Iditarod Insider can you give us a little bit of local flair for yet for us tell us what it's about to live up there and you know sort of what you have to do on the day-to-day to to keep things going up there in the far north sure um Nome has about 3,500 people uh, unlike other bush communities like Barrow, Bethel, Cassidy, or Nome has roads that leave it that are, go about 80 miles uh, between three roads each during the summer. And during the winter, they go about 15 to 20 miles each. So you can actually drive out of town in all seasons, which you can't do in other rural hubs. Me and my wife live 15 miles north of Nome on one of the roads. Uh, they don't plow our neighborhood, so we drive the car for 20 minutes and then no machine half a mile, mile to the house during the winter. But during the summer, you can drive in for neighborhood. 
um, at our house. We Very cool. A relatively small yard, just 19 flood dogs, which is small by most folks' standards. And uh, my day job when I'm not running the dogs is I'm Nome's assistant district attorney. Very nice. Alex, uh, please chime in whenever you like. I don't want to, you know, uh, control the whole conversation here, so we'll just, uh, you know, play it back and forth as we usually do, okay? Sounds good. So, Tom, uh, this was your first Iditarod finishing uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I know that, um, you know, it took you a year or so to to get qualified and, and all of that. Can you introduce us to how you got involved with mushing, uh, how long you've been involved with it, uh, where you got your start, et cetera. Sure. I moved to Nome uh, five and a half years ago now. And I'd been on the sled dog team five and a half years ago, but not much more than that. And when I moved here, I started handling for a local musher, Kirsten Day. And it was a really great experience. Uh, and after six months, I thought, well, heck, let's try getting my own dogs. My wife and I had bought a house up in the neighborhood up here. We, we have just a, maybe five or six houses in the neighborhood, but three of us now are, are did our finishers in the neighborhood. So it's a small community of mushers up here. So the house is all set up to get dogs. We started with nine sled dogs five years ago. And as I said before, we're approaching 20 now. Um, I ran in local recreational races with the Gnome Kennel Club for a couple seasons, and I thought, well, heck, maybe I can give that arrow a shot. So I started moving in that direction. When you first started nice. out and, and were getting your first dogs, where did you uh, where did you get your dogs from? Are they uh, you know prominent bloodlines, or or how did you first start building <laughs> no, your kennel? I never know how to answer the bloodline question. I, uh, half the yard I raised some puppies. Um, their litters we got through a friend of our neighbors. Um, so my neighbor's Connor Thomas. He's a local attorney here. He finished that yard twice. He's friends with a musher named Vern Halter, and Vern Halter gave us nine dogs as puppies. We started out with those dogs and a couple leaders, and I've uh, picked up some other dogs here and there. Um, got a couple from Aaron Burmeister, a couple from Ken Anderson, um, and a couple from Ray Reddington, Jr. Excellent. So, Tom, when you moved up to Nome, are you like a, like a lot of folks in the villages, you know, teachers and, and folks that work for for the governments, were you working somewhere else uh, in the court system and then transferred up there, or was it, I, I guess I would say, by choice? Did you move up there, or were you kind of you know, forced to move up there for your job? Well, I moved here by choice. I was living in Fairbanks with my wife. I lived in Bethel for three years, um, so I know a bunch of the mushers down there. Um, but after moving, I moved to Bethel as an assistant district attorney. I moved to Fairbanks with my wife as an assistant district attorney. And Nome came open. We'd always been curious about living here since it seems like such a great town. I jumped to the chance to become the assistant DA out here. So we both moved out here together by choice. Very nice. Alex? Um, I, you know, I was wondering, was there anything on this year's race that um, – was really surprising to you. I know that a lot of we've talked to a lot of people who, when they are preparing to run Iditarod, 
they think that they have a good handle on it, and then inevitably something comes up that is just, you know, very unexpected and throws them for a loop. So I was wondering how your experience was as rookie this year. Well, it's funny, you know, the race certainly wasn't easy. I have trouble sleeping, like falling asleep. So that was the hardest part until my body got in a rhythm. So the first four days, I didn't sleep more than two hours. So that wasn't easy uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, every finisher that I've talked to in the past couple of years, they warned me so much, saying repeatedly, it's, it's not five 200-mile races. It's not three 300-mile races. It's, it's a whole entire animal. Um, I was so prepared for it being a big, stressful experience. It wasn't. It was actually fun. I mean, we had a good trail. We had uh, we had good conditions, not many storms to speak of. Once I got the sleep thing down, the race was a whole lot of fun. So I was surprised. I had a lot more fun on it than a 300 or 200-mile race that I've run. Can you tell us a little bit about that whole sleep thing? You know, most of our fans that are listening are, are either recreational mushers or just fans of the sport. And, you know, we can talk to, you know, to the cows home, come home about sleep deprivation and how that affects us and how we train for that. And it's difficult to describe if you haven't had to do it. Can you give us an idea of, of how you, you said you weren't really prepared for it, but how you sort of got into that rhythm over the, you know, the, the previous year working with the, uh, you know, the qualifying races and that sort of thing. How did you get your body used to, you know, sleeping on, on such short schedules for so many days? Well, as a preliminary matter, you said that your listeners are recreational mushers, and I still proudly consider myself a recreational musher. I don't make money off of this, so I'm, I'm within that category, no doubt. Um, I don't think you can train yourself for sleep deprivation. I think you just make the best of it. Um, in a 300-mile race, in my experience, you can just kind of tough it out on minimal sleep. And I did it right. I couldn't do that. I was coming into Nikolai. Uh, I hadn't really slept at all. I'd laid down here and there, but I hadn't fallen asleep. And uh, I was hallucinating pretty badly coming into Nikolai. My wife's uncle lives there, and he's the checker, and uh, he saw I was in pretty rough shape, and he's uh, teasing me about it. Um, but I got through – I slept two hours in Nikolai, which helped amazingly. I mean, just two hours just does the world for you. It's surprising. I'm normally an eight-hour and even kind of guy. They woke me up in Nikolai. I was in some shop room with other mushers. They woke me up because they said they had to – uh, make funeral arrangements. They needed to build a coffin in the room we were in. <laughs> so they kicked us out after <laughs> sleeping for two hours. But, you know, I, I was surprised that two hours was enough. I got to Takatna for my 24, and I probably slept 12 hours there in between us feeding the dogs and working on my feet and taking care of them. And then out of Takatna, I could kind of power through uh, Takatna at mile 300. I could power through to Ruby, um, which is another 120, 50 miles down the trail. And I got a terrible chest cold to Ruby. I was in real trouble in the Ruby just because I was so dang sick and I have asthma. This was a real low point of the race for me. I, uh, I had a, just the worst chest cold that I've had in a decade. Of course, it hit during that Diderot. And I was having trouble breathing. This is a race judge. Um, Jim Davis, oh, 
contacted people to open up uh, the village clinic for me, and I got some asthma medication, and I was able to pull hook at 1 a.m. They opened the clinic at midnight for me, and once I got out of Ruby, that was kind of a low point just because I was really sick and having trouble breathing. Once I got out of Ruby and straightened my dogs out, uh, for the rest of the race, from Galena on, so that's maybe mile 450 to mile 975, I slept two hours every checkpoint. The dogs were doing great, and it just became so much fun. So it took me half the race to get in gear. I don't think I could have trained or prepared for that in any way, shape, or form. But the second half of the race was just a lot of fun. Did you, did you have, um, I was just going to say, did you have uh, teams that you were traveling with consistently or had you planned on perhaps traveling with certain teams or how did that work out? Yeah, I, I had not uh, planned on traveling with teams, but it certainly worked out the way. It's really a fun part of the race. You know, there were so many mushers starting, 85 started, 71 finished, so it was a real crowded crowded field, but you really only only saw like five or six mushers on the trail once the pack got sorted out because not traveling with people in the sense that I'd be next to them on the trail, but we'd all pull into checkpoint at approximately the same time. So Noah and Ryan and Kirsten Knight Pace, uh, I would see them at the checkpoints and we'd swap stories and talk and we'd all kind of pull hook together and move on to the next checkpoint. And that was real nice. It was kept my morale up and um, it's just nice seeing the same faces at each checkpoint. So traveling with teams on the trail, uh, excuse me, do you guys assist each other in any way, or is it just more of a camaraderie thing? You know, um, I'll tell you, Ryan Olson assisted me. When I was sick in uh, Ruby, I was thinking about taking five more hours there instead of the five or six that I stayed because I was so sick, but she – gave me very strong encouragement saying, let's all leave at 1 a.m., Jim Goshen, let's get out of here, and that sure did help me. It was the encouragement I needed to to stay on track. But beyond that, um, we all kind of were positive to each other and you know, complimenting each other's teams, but no other assistance that I saw other than that. I mean, maybe lending someone. I lent out my um, iPod charger and other incidental stuff like that. I gave Sarah Stokely a, a layer of clothing when the wind picked up on the coat, but nothing more serious than that. Right. Was Alex? there a point in the race where you where you realized that you were actually going to finish and get your belt buckle? Or or was it, <laughs> you know, up until you came down Front Street, there was still the possibility well, it might all go terribly wrong? Well, it was a real heart attack trail. I lost a lot of leaders to shoulder injuries. Um, I started, obviously, with 16 dogs. I finished with nine. And coming into Ruby, I had four dogs with shoulder injuries, and I had to drop them all, not in Ruby, but two in Ruby and two soon thereafter. And that was real hard. So I, I was always concerned that my core group of three leaders, one of them would get injured and have to drop one of them. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. So I was never sure I was going to make it until pulling out of White Mountain that's home train. I know that area well from our Gnome Castle 200 race. And all the dogs in it, too. They were looking great coming out of White Mountain. So I wasn't sure I was going to make it until I pulled hook in White Mountain. So, Tom, uh, having not run the Iditarod myself, but run many of uh, you know the, the 200s, the 300 milers, 
and always sort of in the back of my mind, I'm trying to, you know, add all these things up as we're going down the trail. You know, is this dog looking right? Is this one limping? Does this one have a shoulder? You know, it, it, it sort of uh, occasionally will run on the back burner. Did you ever have moments like that on the trail? You know, you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, 50 miles from one point to the, you know, in the middle of a checkpoint, so to speak, and you're, you're, you're constantly contemplating things on whether they're going right or wrong. Did you have any of those thoughts out there? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, it's always in the back of your mind. You're, you're responsible for, you know, anywhere from five to 16 dogs, depending on how many are in your team at the moment. So you're always thinking about, golly, is that dog's gait right? Is that one eating? Um, but as been said before, the, the highs are really high and the lows are low. Um, something that we said in the little group we were traveling with, we all noted that it was a lot easier when the sun was coming up. Uh, the world was looking a lot better. The, the runs from 11 p.m. till 5 a.m., those are always kind of tough, a little bit hard to keep the spirits up. And I'll tell you, the, right. coming out of Ruby, when I, uh, you know, as I said before, I was sick. I was just in a bad mood, and I was booting those dogs up. And normally I talk to them and I'm friendly with them and, I wasn't doing that. I was just booting them up, and I wasn't being my nice, normal self. And the one, one time the dogs had a mutiny is pulling out of Ruby is about 1:30 in the morning, and the dogs go three miles down the Yukon. Yukon's like a mile and a half wide at this point. They stop, and my leaders turn around back towards Ruby, and I'm pretty sure they're saying we don't want to continue this race uh, with this grumpy jerk. We want to get the nice guy who pulled into Ruby with us. So. That was entirely my fault. I just I wasn't talking to them. I wasn't keeping their spirits up. Um, so it, it created such a tangle in the middle of the Yukon at, you know, middle of the night that they had to un, uh, unclip all 12 dogs, <laughs> 12 dogs loose in the middle of the Yukon River. Uh, and I was hoping a moose didn't come by or another team or something, but I got everything straightened out and clipped the 12 dogs up. No one ran away. Uh, and I gave them probably a 45-minute pep talk, um, just getting their spirits up, and they charged all the way to Nome on that. So, yeah, that was, that was a lesson for me. Like, half your job is taking care of yourself, the other half is taking care of the dogs and keeping their spirits up. Good stuff. Alex? Uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering what it was like when you came into the when you came into the checkpoints. Were you able to get any sort of information about what was going on in other parts of the race? You know, with with the people who were farther ahead, or what the trail conditions were, or was it pretty much that you were just um, concerned with doing what you had to do with your dog chores, getting a little bit of rest, and getting back out on the on the trail? Well. It's interesting. You're in kind of an information bubble. You don't know much along the trail, although most checkpoints seem to have a print-up of where other mushers are at the moment. Even alone, which is in the middle of nowhere, had a little printer rigged up, so you could see where people were as of you know whenever the page was printed a few hours ago. So you had a general sense of the race um, uh, in checkpoints. So you didn't really get much other news like. Leaving a rainy pass, I think everyone would have liked to know that there was water coming up so people could have prepared that that wasn't communicated, at least to anyone in my group. 
Um, it's, it's just, so there was very little information about the trail and conditions. Later on in the race, we started seeing Boltons up on boards. Like when I pulled into Ruby, uh, that's when I learned about the whole Jeff King, Ali Zirkel thing, because there's a Bolton board mm-hmm. and all these other press releases. And that obviously was a right. big deal for all the mushers reading about it. So you have very limited information, but you have some. Uh, it's mostly just a couple of digital press releases tacked up to a wall and a print-up of where the other mushers are. You know, I'm glad you know, I'm, that, I don't uh, want to ask you something. Oh, Sorry, go ahead. I was oh, just going to say, gonna I don't want to ask you. You said that. <laughs> go ahead, Alex. <laughs> I'm also glad you said that. Uh, I don't want to ask you to say things that you're not supposed to or allowed to say. And I'm not asking you for any any sort of professional uh, view on on this case, but I I'm wondering uh, first of all how you felt just personally when you heard about the um, the uh, the attack on on Ali and Jeff, and and also whether whether at that point that sort of made you put on your um, your assistant district attorney hat a little bit and start thinking about that in terms of you know, a more professional uh, legal approach to it or whether it, you were, you know, 100% still wearing your musher hat? Well, my first thought was the jurisdictional lines in the state because we start out in the in the um, judicial district where cases go to Anchorage. Pretty soon you're in the district where cases go to Fairbanks. And um, my first thought was, dang, is this my case or Fairbanks' case? And I realized it's going to go to Fairbanks. Um, after that, yes, what charges are going to be filed? It's assigned to an attorney in Fairbanks, and I'm sure he'll do a good job. I don't, I don't know anything about the specifics of the case other than what's in the newspaper. Right. But so uh, it was, yeah, it was quite shocking up. for us uh, mushers on the trail. There were a couple of mushers in Ruby that were crying when they heard the news, and certainly when you came across any snow machine or late at night, I was I became alarmed like, golly, is this person intoxicated or not? So it certainly raised the alarm on the trail for, for us mushers. Right. So Tom, if I could go back um to to the previous point that you were talking about the information on the trail, you know, when we host our nightly coverage during Iditarod, almost always it's just Alex and I uh, you know, talking about it and telling you know, um, stories about mushers and, and what's happening that day. But so many fans these days are getting their information from the trackers or from Insider or something like that. And it, it, it seems to always be a, a point of frustration with the fans because there's so little information coming in from the trail. And you had just mentioned, hey, you know, you guys are on the trail. You know, you're in the thick of things, and you're getting very little information about what's going on themselves if you could you know kind of reach back in time a little bit and give uh some you know some information to the fans on you know the best way to you know you know kind of kind of enjoy it as a fan how would you do that other than just constantly getting frustrated from the information that they have now because you know you guys are literally spanned across uh, 300 miles or so from the beginner to the end uh, of trail with very little communication out there. Well, 
you know, I'm primarily a fan of the race. I've only run it once, obviously, so I certainly understand that point of view. Um, although family and friends watching from home have so much more information than the mushers. They they know exactly where everyone is, what speed they're moving. They can read Sebastian's great blog on Abidro.com uh, to get stories from the trail. And people just following all the information on Abidro.com keep up way more to date than anyone on any musher on the trail uh, can. So I'm sure it is frustrating. I know it is frustrating. You're watching Tracker, wondering why someone isn't moving, uh, wondering why Tracker isn't updating. You know, D.D. Johnner left her Tracker in the grass on her old sled by accident. I know it's frustrating, but, I mean, in this day and age, watching the race from online just is a wealth of information compared to any musher from my limited experience. You know, just just a couple of years ago, uh, you were literally getting all of your information just from either Iditarod.com or, you know, the Alaska Dispatch or, or whatever, there wasn't that real-time aspect of these big races. And, you know, you really had to just sort of sit back and wait for, for stories to come in almost, uh, you know, a little bit more old school than it is now, didn't you? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. You had to wait for <clears throat> mushers coming to town and telling stories at the bar. <laughs> Whereas now, right, right. you have a lot of media on the trail getting the stories out immediately from the villages. So, yeah, we're in an information-rich era for race fans. That's certainly true. Did Alex, you have a chance while you were on the trail to have any sort of uh, contact with anybody outside? Were you able to to uh, make any phone calls or anything, or was it was it pretty much that you were just there in your, you know, cutoff and, and moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I wasn't sure how that would work as a musher. Um, but pulling into Tukatna at mile 300 for my 24, first of all, Aaron Burmeister was there. He's a, you know, longtime gnome resident. He was really my mentor this season, and I could not have finished the race without his advice. He was in Tukatna, which was awesome. So I got to say hi to him, tell him how the dogs were doing, touch base, um, that was just fantastic. I also went to Katna. Uh, the race judge allows mushers to make phone calls if the provided the phone calls are supervised. So you can make a three to five minute phone call briefly uh, to a significant other or family to let your race staff observe it. So I did call my wife from Katna, and I called my mom from Katna, and I made two other phone calls during the race. I called my wife uh, from White Mountain and Galena. We we have a, a first child, six weeks old at the start of the race, eight weeks old at the end. So I tried to check in as often as I could on our, our kid. You know, I wanted to mention that if we could, uh, Tom, is talk about your little one there. I, I saw the pictures there before the race, and you know, uh, and of course the the picture I guess you took. Uh, um, in the uh, backpack type of thing there for for the promotional photos, how how was it out there on the trail for being such a new dad? You know, you have all of those things going through your mind as well, and you know, here you are out there in the middle of the wilderness, and you know, your family's all all tucked in back home, cheering on dad. You know, even at six weeks old, uh, you know, the kids are 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 the you know they're your fans as well. What were you thinking about while you're out there? 
Well, you mentioned the promotional photo. Just so listeners understand, the Anchor's Daily News uh, publishes a big spread of all the mushrooms under the headshot, and you see that all along the race trail. It's uh, it's kind of a the thing how fans know what mushrooms look like, and I happen to be wearing our baby uh, on the front pack, so the baby's head is in my photo. So twice during the ceremonial start, people yelled out at me, where's the baby? <laughs> when I was doing a little <laughs> quick run <laughs> through Anchorage. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly miss the kid. I miss my wife. Um, when I was super tired and having trouble sleeping, thinking that my kid sure did help. At one point, if I had some safety pins, my, my wife snuck uh, pictures of the baby into several of my drop bags. So I had notes oh, on nice. my wife and pictures of the baby, which was great. That certainly kept my spirits up. And if I had clothespins, I would have pinned a picture of the baby on top of my flood, but I just couldn't find any clothespins. But, yeah, actually, right. I missed the kid, but uh, I sure was glad she was in my life because she helped me keep on going down the trail. Awesome stuff. Do you think Alex, that you're going to come back here. and – Sure. Do you think you're going to come back and do this again, or uh, <laughs> is it too early to tell? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'll tell you – I had such a good time the second half of the race. I would love to, um, but it's just extraordinarily expensive. Um, it's really a financial undertaking to put it together for people that don't have big-time sponsors. So I don't know. Um, I think I'll see what the dog yard looks like, not this summer, but next summer, and see where we're at. So we'll certainly strongly consider it, um, but... Just it's hard to do for recreational mushers who don't have big time sponsors. Right. Well, you know, I want to say uh, before before we end that um, uh, first of all, congratulations! It's it's just an an enormous achievement for anyone to be able to do, and for someone who has a full time job and a and a very important job that you know is has a big impact on society to be able to have enough time to train the dogs and to, to raise your own dogs and do your qualifiers and then run the race is just an enormous achievement. So, uh, you know, I want to make sure, uh, which I should have said at the top of the show, um, it, it is very inspirational for those of us who are fans every time we see someone like you who trains and then completes the race. So congratulations. Well, thanks. You know, I, if I was working full time the whole time, I couldn't have done it. But my boss has been very generous with leave. Uh, I took two months off last winter to qualify, um, and this year I took three and a half months off to train for the dinner ride, which in a two attorney office certainly has an impact on the other attorney. Um, so yeah, thank you. I, I, I didn't work full time the whole time. I, was, I had a lot of help from my boss from the Department of Law in Alaska. So, Tom, I just have two more questions. Uh, the first one is, how did it feel pulling into your hometown? You know, most mushers, at least if they live in Alaska, they're either from the Matsu Valley, uh, you know, Kenai area, uh, Anchorage, or Fairbanks. So they never get to pull into home. And there you were pulling into, you know, onto your home street. You know, you live right down the road from there. How did that feel? And then the second question, what we'll end with is, I always ask the rookie mushers that we interview here on this show is if you can give one piece of advice 
to somebody that's just starting the journey you just finished, whether it's training, qualifying, getting involved, whatever, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, Pullman's gnome. Everyone said seeing the city lights of gnome uh, is the thing that gets to them, and that was neat, but the thing that got to me is uh, fans of the race probably know that when mushers are two to three miles from town, they pass something called the Swanberg Dredge. The siren goes off. That alerts people in town, hey, get down to the shoot, a musher's coming. And uh, I heard my own siren go off, and that was that was something I'll never forget. That really got to me. Um, and it was pretty amazing pulling in. You know, I, I was back in the pack. I was 57th place out of 71 finishers. And I came in at 2.45 a.m. I thought no one would be there except a few people, but I was pretty amazed how many people showed up to see uh, a back-of-the-pack musher. It was great sleeping in my own bed that night and getting my dogs back to their own houses. It was, it was great. It made the end of the race easy and fun. <laughs> Not, you know, the, like poor Dallas, he had to stay in town for, what, a week or so until the a banquet. A week? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, a long time until the banquet. Um, right. But it was great just plugging back into my life. Uh Right, right when the race is over. And that's the other question. You know, the, the only way to do this, from my point of view, is get a mentor. I mean, Aaron Burmaster is mine, and um, that guy knows that I did a ride. Someone you can bounce questions off of and run concerns off of, ask about gear, because you just can't go into this blind without someone giving you advice. It's such an overwhelming project from the start. Um, you need someone to to bounce ideas off of and just help you out with everything from drop bags to, you know, ideas about run refs. It's just uh, you need need a mentor. I couldn't have done it without a mentor. Good stuff there, Tom. So how do folks follow you? Do you have a website? Are you on Facebook? Uh, how can folks uh, become a fan of, of you and your kennel? Well, <laughs> you know, for the time being, we have a, a – channel that reflects our low ambition and our pro-dog mentality. It's called Couch Dog Kennel. Um, we have, a, you know, as I said, we have almost 20 dogs now, and uh, every night a few of them come in and hang out on the couch. So that's the website. We'll, we'll see if we'll keep it active uh, for the time being. Certainly it is couchdogkennel.com. CouchDogKennel.com. Very good stuff. Uh, I hope I don't uh, mess up your name again. Here's Tom Jamgochian. Is that right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Tom, thank you very much for joining it's, us it's tonight. It's just like it's so we'll make sure that we <laughs> I don't know what the problem yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. We, we will definitely uh, pass along the link once we upload it here uh, for the station early next week. And, uh, again, appreciate it, and congratulations uh, not only to – to being a new dad, but also finishing the Iditarod. They're both very remarkable achievements for sure. Okay, thanks for your time, guys. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you so much, On behalf Tom. of my guest today and co-host Alex Stein, we'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Ford, a winner team, has an individual training plan. 
We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com.